The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. I want to talk a little bit about specialization and the internets define specialization as the process of concentrating on and becoming expert in a particular subject or skill. Well, that, that all checks out. That seems like a good thing. Uh, especially, you know, doctors, um, at some point in their training, medical doctors, that is, uh, and even, you know, academic doctors like myself, we, we specialize at some point in our academic careers, right? Uh, maybe it's during our study, during our matriculation, and sometimes it's afterwards, after we even write an entire dissertation on a topic that we never want to discuss with you ever again. Um, we may specialize after that or through the dissertation process, realize what we're really passionate about. But what about specialization and a composer? I, I think about it. There are like band composers. There are electroacoustic composers. There are people that and composers that write one type of music or in a certain style or they're from the fourth or eighth Viennese school, um, and they are sort of specialized in one area. But I wonder how healthy any of this is. Um, and that's usually what I'm talking with with other composers and other creatives on this show about defining ourselves and devi- defining our identity as creative people. So is specialization really something that we should focus on? I think for, for young people, um, you know, for early learners, uh, especially even those going into composition, you know, I, I think of my own self in undergrad, which was, let's not talk about how many years ago that was, but, you know, I went into school as a sound recording major at the, at the Hart School. And eventually through my studies, I realized I really loved composition and writing music and I focused on that, and I actually graduated with a dual degree in both and went on to pursue that. And I just remember thinking, as far as specialization is concerned, there was a few classmates and friends that I had that were undeclared majors, meaning they were just going to school to kind of find their way. And I, I thought that was just so, I, I just thought that was reckless. Uh, I mean, financially, maybe. Um, philosophically, you should just know what you want to do. 
you should already begin that specialization. And even back then, so this was the 90s, I had to, I had to tell you, Wed, even back then it was a little odd to be an undeclared major. Um, now, today, I, I, I look at a lot of the students that I have and they have you know, two majors, uh, three minors, and then a black belt in Aikido uh, and all these other sort of qualifications and certifications that they're going for. So there's a lot of specialization going on. Well, how does this all relate to composition and maybe being unhealthy? Well, I guess I wonder how much of this uh, specialization, how that affects our psyche as what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we're very specialized or we're very focused in our idea of what being creative is, so if we're not sitting and writing notes or uh, you know putting notes on a page or publishing a score, then we're not being a composer. We're not doing that very specialized skill. And I talked with Emily Coe today. She's fantastic. She's an educator herself, as well as a fantastic composer and performer of the double bass, as well as electronics and many other cool things that we'll talk about today. But she talked a little bit about understanding what is or defining what is part of being a composer or a creative for that matter. And I love this idea of really everything we do. And you could define this. We actually got into food. We said that even creating food or making food and eating it is part of the creative process. Because if you stop eating, uh, not, the creativity really drops off uh, after about day three. Uh, water a little bit longer. But every part of everything you do that aids the creative process can be considered part of composing or being creative. I even think about, you know, I just told you in undergrad, I started out as a, a recording or a music production major and uh, leaned into composing. But if you think about it, um, both of those things are part of my creative process and they are very, very much a big part of how I create music today, but then also how I communicate with others in the creative field. Uh, this podcast, the production and all the skills that I've learned over the years uh, working with audio and dealing with sound and editing and mixing, that all comes into this podcast. And I actually think of this podcast as part of my creative process. So Emily talks about that, and she has a really great perspective on redefining what we sort of see as being composing and not composing or being doing that specialized skill that we've honed over the years versus all the other things that we have to do to complement that one specific act. So let's take a listen to Blocked Borders by Emily Coe and learn more about her and her music.
Emily Coe is a Singaporean composer based in Atlanta, Georgia, whose music reimagines everyday experiences by sonically expounding tiny, oft-forgotten details and is characterized by inventive explorations of the intricacies of sound. As an amateur multidisciplinary artist herself, she enjoys collaborating with creatives of other specializations, especially when sound plays a central role in the project. Described as the future of composing by The Straits Times Singapore, Emily is the recipient of awards such as the Copeland House Residency Award, the Young Artist Award from the National Arts Council in Singapore, and the Shiro Irino Memorial Prize from the Asian Composer League, as well as the ASCAP Morton Gould Young Composer Award and an Innovative Research Award from University of Georgia. Her work is supported with commissions, grants, and fellowships from the Opera America, McDowell, the Barlow Endowment for Music Composition, New Music USA, American Composers Orchestra, National Arts Council, Singapore, and others. Emily is currently Assistant Professor of Music Composition at the University of Georgia. In today's episode, we listen to Emily's Blocked Borders for voice, saxophone, and electronics. A lot of my creative process comes from, um, I, I would say, visual art structures. And other times it comes from just meeting other humans and, you know, hearing their stories. Yeah. And those are the two most common ways I get, you know, started with my creative process. And I'm never at the piano because I'm a terrible pianist. <laughs> um, but I really enjoy playing on my instrument. Mm-hmm. I play double bass. Great. So sometimes I go there just to experiment and see what's going on. And other times, you know, I just eat. <laughs> That's part of my creative process. So I think it's very different with every single piece. Um, but there are a few common ones like, you know, art and also uh, people. Yeah, I think uh, eating, I think the creative process is helpful for me to stop eating, I think. <laughs> Stop eating. I think otherwise I'd just be eating all the time. I'm like, okay, I got to go write a piece. I got to like put this lasagna down. Um, Oh, man. (laughs) For me, when I'm writing a piece, you know I'm in the thick of it. When you look at my table, it's all snacks and five different water glasses and three different mugs and everything's on the table. That's where we're in it. (laughs) Okay, so so you're inspired, you said, maybe by... Uh, an art, a art, a, a painting, some type of a film, something, um, a, a visual art. Um, mm-hmm. How does that translate then to maybe improvising on the double bass? Is it, um, are, are those like, do you see something visually and then are inspired to go to the double bass? Um, what's, what's sort of the process there? As a performer, I like to improvise. And because I like to improvise, I also look at a lot of graphic scores and open instrumentation scores. And those, if you, you know, like think about that, looks very much like visual art. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So a lot of times I look at visual art and try to find my way through that art by playing through it. So I think it's kind of all interconnected, the, uh, you know, performer, the composer, and I also create art. Like I'm 
you know, an emperor artist. So I think all of those kinds of creative paths come together in some strange ways when I start composing. Yeah. I, so do you like go to a museum and just see sheet music? Is that? <laughs> kind of, or just like things that could be easily translated into music or sound. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. You know, um, I also like to go to museums to meet artists. Yeah. I, I really enjoy talking to art people yeah. or uh, creative people who are in different disciplines because sometimes their processes or their practices are similar, but we don't realize it. And once you talk to these people and realize how similar we are, you maybe gain a new way to look at your own art. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And then even just seeing the the similarities or the dualities in, oh, well, this person's a painter, but they're struggling with the same sort of, you know, creative blocks, sort of, uh, you know, how do you develop an idea over time? You know, th these same these same sort of like truisms, uh, whether you're writing music or or, or painting or, or sculpting. So when do other musicians or other interpreters of music, when do they become part of the creative process for you? At least in the past couple of years, I've written music for specific people. Sure. And that's what I'm interested in doing, working closely with my collaborators in writing something that um, is up their alley. It shows them in a good light and also pushes them to explore mm -hmm. outside of what they think are their natural boundaries. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where my interaction with other people come. Um, and through that process, I also learn a lot. Yeah. And when I have performers who are close collaborators like this, yeah. the you know back and forth collaboration happens really, really early. Mm -hmm. um, I would sketch an idea, you know, just like maybe one bar or maybe even a note. Yeah and say, hey, you know, this F sharp, I think it's special. Do you have five different fingerings so that I can do a five timbral trill on this note? Mm -hmm. And just, you know, mm -hmm. sending out ideas to my collaborators early mm -hmm. and I guess pushing them in ways that they haven't been pushed before so that we know what the boundaries for this piece yeah. is. Yeah. Um, because every single piece is different. Every collaborator is different. Sure. I, I try to get them into the process as early as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think it also depends on the collaborators, I guess, personality. Sure. Some people really just don't like to reveal that much about themselves. Yeah. Uh, in which case, then I send, you know, drafts mm -hmm. and sometimes I don't hear back. And sometimes I hear back about mm -hmm. a small thing and, you know, the initial response I get from my, my collaborators tell me a lot about how they want to work mm -hmm. uh, on this collaboration together. And, you know, I just go from that and be in a space that's comfortable for both of us. So if they want it to be more transactional, you know, here's the here's the piece. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't play this note. OK, go straight to the performance. And then there's some people yeah. like, you know, what would be really great is if at this point you did this is that and you're like, oh, great, let's let's workshop that. Let's do that. So it can be either way. It can mm -hmm. be right, like really transactional or it can be this really collaborative thing. Um, yeah. So when do you know a piece is done? Um, <laughs> yeah, no one likes this one. No one. <laughs> The piece is done when the deadline yeah, is there. There you go. That's what. Yeah, that's what. That's what I say. It's done when the yeah when the grants due or the deadline or the performance or whatever. Yeah, it's done when it's done. Right. Yeah. 
and and I mean, I have edited pieces beyond the first and second performances. Sure. Um, I, I usually think first performances are never quite what I imagined the piece to be so that, you know, so I really want to go back and tweak it a little bit after the first performance. So I'd say, you know, beyond the second performance, I, I try not to change too much, but I think after the performance, I still go back and tweak it a little bit because I think it's fair game at that point, sure. especially if there's a second and third, you know, future performances up. So I don't think of the premiere as that big of a deal. I think of, you know, maybe the third performance as, the actual piece most of the time yeah and so uh are are the musicians then or the music interpreters are they brought into that revision process typically or is that something you kind of you're like all right well this is kind of how uh, how i saw it in the concert maybe i need to move this or tweak this a little bit yeah i mean 100 percent. the performers are part of the edit process post performance post premiere mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes people feel it's so much more comfortable to do so then because the stress of the performance yeah, is done. Yeah, yeah. And, and we can just like talk about the piece, like the piece needs to be talked about without having a deadline uh, on, you know, we need a presentable product right, <laughs> yes, by this yeah, time. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think the collaboration definitely goes on past the premiere and hopefully it's, you know, beyond to other projects as well. So I think the title of this piece is is kind of like a puzzle, right? So I, I looked at it and I wanted to name it Locked Orders or Blocked Borders. Um, because if you looked at the title mathematically, you could put the B in front of either both. half, yeah. both, mm -hmm. right? And they have different meanings. So I named the piece that way because for this piece, we had a lot of collaborators. We had Noah Evan, who's the saxophonist, and I also had Michiko Saiki, who uh, made the video. And this piece came up after, you know, the Trump travel bans. That's what they were, yeah. you know, used to be called. Yeah. And as three kind of first and second generation immigrants to different countries, yeah. We, I especially felt extremely uncomfortable and scared at that time uh, about what, you know, the ramifications of these travel bans could be for, you know, immigrant communities, for uh, first and second generation immigrants that, you know, still have roots uh, somewhere else and also has roots in this country. So um, we were all very affected by that in slightly different ways. So, you know, having that multiplicity of interpreting 
uh, interpreting this piece uh, really helped uh, make it, I would say, accessible, more accessible to different communities. And, you know, we really wanted it to be a piece that doesn't have a single kind of viewpoint or perspective. It has to be somewhat multifaceted. Sure. So that's kind of the piece that we aimed to write. One of the things that was was striking to me, or there's many things that were striking about the piece, but your, your sort of use of, uh, quote unquote, uh, noises. Yeah, so I, I really like uh, noise sounds, you know, because I think there is a lot of interpretations that you can get from that. Sure. Uh, so at the very beginning of the piece, this is like turning on kind of sounding, right. yeah. you know, yeah. the high sound and yeah. it comes down again. Mm -hmm. Like that, I really liked because some people would listen to that and think, oh, that's like a TV, right. you know, sound. Yeah just turn on a TV or you turn on the radio and it gives people the distance that they need to approach this sort of subject matter uh, by, you know, saying that, okay, this is on TV. It may, may not be real. Mm. Who knows? Right. So there's that. And also I think noise is very much a part of the way I think uh, of timbre uh, in, in most of my, most of my works. I, I think, you know, there's something really special in noise that we don't hear, right? There's all sorts of different pitches, but we don't really hear them as pitches. We hear them as maybe blocks of pitches. So there's low noise and mid noise and high noise. And that really works well with my ideas uh, around microtonality. So what about the voice? I think something that was really striking about the piece um, was the voice and 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 it's um it's it felt like a person gasping for air it felt uh it it felt like anxiety to me honestly and it was anxiety inducing so what is mm -hmm. what was the voice for you and what how was that part of the piece yeah so um when we talked about this piece uh i i told noah that the idea of breath was very important to me and we can hear a lot about how someone's feeling or thinking just by listening to the way they breathe. Mm. So, you know, breaths in the usual way that we listen to them and use them is essential for life. Mm. And breaths for a saxophone player is essential to the way they play. So the idea of breath kind of just holds the entire piece together. And I felt like if it were just breaths throughout the piece with no other human noises, mm -hmm. um, it would bring the idea of breath too far into this, this noise realm mm -hmm. without humanizing it. Mm -hmm. So I did feel it was very important to somewhere in the piece include some words and voices mm -hmm. uh, just to pull the idea of breaths toward a more human source mm -hmm. a little bit more. And so there's in part of the piece, there's like the hello. Yes. And, you know, the word hello is a word that we use so much and all the time. But do we really mean uh, when we say hello, other people, do we really mean, you know, like hello? Or is this just like a passing remark? I think that is one of, mm. you know, one of those words that often has a lot of meanings to it. It's like also how we use how are you? Is that yeah. how are you or is it just, you know, yeah. hi, I see you around.
Hello? Hello? Who's there? Because my compositional process is not really fixed, everything could be part of my process. Um, and I've done a few interviews like this so far, and there are interesting questions that make me think about, you know, what, you know, being a composer means. Um, I feel like every time I interact with anyone, it's always a good opportunity for these reflections of my life to be thought of a little bit more. and. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm weird, but pondering about life seems to be a very artist thing to do. Um, and therefore kind of like comes back to, yes, I think a composer needs to sit down and think about what they want to do yeah. or what they could do when they're, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So yeah. definitely, you know, marketing, updating my Instagram, for example, sure. is absolutely part of being a composer, is absolutely part of the composer business on a larger scale. Yeah. So... Composer, yeah. and you mean composer business, meaning not the business of like the personality of a, being a composer. Yeah, the personality. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and we talked a little bit about freedom, um, you know, both being uh, professors and dealing with tenure and dealing with research responsibilities. Uh, that, that offers a lot of freedom because for me to quote unquote write a piece, I'm technically fulfilling, uh, you know, one of the promotion and tenure obligations, right? What are the positives for you um, for being a both, uh, you know, a teacher and a composer? I mean, I think everything is together. So there's not really a separate thing, but there are separate hats mm. that I can put on or take off mm. at any time or, or shuffle between. Um, so benefits of being an academic composer, <laughs> if you might want to call us that. I think, you know, having a job is great, mm -hmm. you know, not figuring out, well, not having to figure out like how to put food on the paycheck comes mm -hmm. is a wonderfully freeing uh, thing. Previously, I would just take any commission mm -hmm. that comes my way because it's necessary. Right. I would teach privately to any student mm -hmm. uh, because I do need the paycheck. Yeah. Uh, but having just the flexibility and freedom to say no, like, yeah. I think you should, you know, talk to this person. They might be a better teacher for you. Yeah. Or um, I think you should, you know, commission this other composer instead because what you're wanting is not really up my alley. Mm -hmm. um, having the freedom just, just to say that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have to push myself into boxes I know don't fit me. Mm -hmm. Well, fantastic. Um, well, this has been great, uh, Emily. It's been great meeting you and, and, and talking with you. Um, mm -hmm. Before I let you go, um, is there a way that listeners can find out more about you and your music? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm online at emilyco.net and i'm also on social media as at e-m-y-k-o-h-m-e-co uh facebook instagram youtube you know check out the composer person personality i guess
Thanks to Emily Coe for sharing her time and music with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out other episodes in the series. And as always, like subscribe on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process.